Are you someone who likes to think on their feet? If you are, you have something in common with the ancient philosopher Aristotle. He was not only a thinker and a teacher, but Aristotle was a walker. As he lectured, he would pace, sometimes around in the building where the students were gathered and sometimes out of the building, and the students were always required to follow him. The Greek word peripatein, which means to walk, is connected with Aristotle. The covered walk, the Lyceum, where he taught, was called the parapetros or parapetas, the place of the walker. In the English, we take that Greek word and we use the word pedestrian from that same particular word. I, I can remember uh, back in English class where the teacher wanted us to build up our vocabularies and uh, this particular word was given to us, peripateo, actually is the Greek word, peripatetic. And the, the word peripatetic sounds a lot to me like really pathetic. And <laughs> That's how I remembered it, because if you have to walk everywhere you go and you don't have a car, that's really bad. A little mnemonic like that helped get me through school. But peripatetic, um, you know, refers to someone who goes from place to place, often for jobs, and usually not staying a long time. They seem to be on the move constantly. Use it in a sentence. Well, the, the itinerant preacher his life was peripatetic, often going from one place to another. <laughs> the ironic thing is that the early uh, circuit riding preachers didn't walk, they were on cars, but the word peripatetic came to be used to refer to all kinds of movement and people going from place to place, not just walking. Use it in another sentence. Well, how about this one, Romans chapter four, and verse eight, and the one on the screen is actually taken from the New American Standard Bible, Romans eight, verse four, which says, sin has been condemned in us so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk. There it is, the peripatein word uh, from the Greek. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but who walk according to the spirit. This particular Greek word finds itself about 90 different times in the Bible, and it's referring to movement, and it's also referring to the idea of progress, usually, forward movement, as we think of someone walking and not staying in one locale, but actually making progress, going from place to place. Now, the Greek word, can be used literally where someone is walking about on their feet, or it can be used figuratively to speak of a person's way of life, to walk. And that being true, when you look at verse four, you notice immediately that there are two ways to walk, or two ways to live. Two ways to direct the course of your life. Paul reduces it to the bare essential minimum so that everyone in the world 
walks in one of these two ways. It's really exciting when we get into the book of Romans to see uh, the essence and foundation of our own relationship with the Lord boil down to this particular perspective. And so the question is, how indeed do you walk? Let's go to Romans chapter 8 verse 4 in the NIV. And I must confess to you that my translation today on the screen is a combination of the of the 1984 NIV and the 2011 NIV and then some of my own translation as well because I just, I guess I thought it was better. (laughs) Easier for me to understand. So after telling us in verse one of chapter eight that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit has given us life and set us free from the law of sin and death. And what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by our sinful flesh, that is, the sinful flesh couldn't keep the law, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus became a man so that he could die as a sin offering for mankind, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. Now verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. By the way, this is the first positive statement having reference to the law in the book of Romans so far. That the law will be, and its requirements will be fully met in us. If we walk or live, There's the figurative definition of the word. If we live according, not to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Paul reminds us that one does not keep the law to be saved, but one must be saved to keep the law. It's the spirit of God in us that gives us both the will and the power to do his pleasure. It's not even our own work. And so, you'll notice in verse four, you have the term sinful nature. That's a translation of the word flesh. And I think that's a proper way to translate it because the word flesh in the New Testament can mean one of three things. It can mean our human body, the flesh, or it can be a human perspective, According to the flesh, Jesus was, according to the flesh, the son of David. According to the spirit, son of God. So sometimes a human perspective is used with this word. But Paul is using it exclusively, the term flesh, to refer to our sinful nature. Everyone has a sinful nature since the fall of Adam. Believers still have remaining corruption within called the sinful nature, as well as the indwelling Holy Spirit, which we will see in just a moment. So this whole idea of the flesh then is we don't want to walk according to it, the sinful nature, but we want to walk according to the Holy Spirit of God. Look at verse five. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires or longs for. It's a mindset. 
prior to the behavior is the set of the mind. That's what the scripture is saying. The objects and ideas and passions, the core of our being that makes up our outlook and determines our mentality. It's either controlled by the flesh or controlled by the spirit. You remember Proverbs 23, don't you? As a person thinks in their heart, so they are. As we think, we behave. The battle is won and lost in the mind. And the mind is going to drive you and move you according to what you long for. Our walk depends upon our mind. Our conduct depends upon our outlook or perspective in life. We're driven. If the flesh is in control, we're driven by these human appetites that are God-given but sin-defiled. So they're good gifts from God that we have defiled because of our sinful nature being in control. We have the ability to turn everything around. So those who walk or live according to the flesh follow really 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world's passing away, and the lust thereof, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So this idea of immorality, the idea of materialism, and the idea of egotism drive the soul that has the sinful nature in control. It is what we give ourselves up to. It's what we spend our time and energy doing. That indeed is what is controlling us. There's an interesting poem written by Wesley Hager called Conquering. Maybe you've heard it before. One ship drives east and another west with the self same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sail, and not the gales, which tells us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the waves, are the ways of life. As we voyage along through time, tis the set of the soul that decides the goal, and not the calm or the strife. Your life is not good or easy because the storms are few. Your life does not turn out good or does not turn out bad simply because you have encountered certain difficulties in life. No, it's the set of the sail. It's the mindset. Whether you've given your heart to God or whether you are still in control. Now, there is the mindset of the spirit the scripture for the mindset of the flesh is 1 John 2. The scripture for the mindset of the spirit could easily be Galatians chapter 5. For the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So the mindset on the spirit then takes its lead from the Spirit, its promptings from the Spirit. 
It desires what the Spirit desires. And what the Spirit desires is what God desires. And so the set of the sail, the set of the mind, the direction and course of life is dramatically different. Now added to that, look at verse 6. For the mind governed by the sinful nature is death. Some of your translations will have the word control. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So it's not just the inclination or disposition or direction of your mind. It's stronger than that. These influences control the mind. So the sinful nature and the spirit are not mere influences. They are governing authorities. And the way the scripture is written, you are either under one or the other. If you're under the control of the flesh, it doesn't mean that the spirit never uh, comes in, invades with conviction or different thoughts, but you're under the the control of the sinful nature. And, on the other hand, if you are in the spirit, the spirit is under control because the spirit lives in you. And you will have forays with the sin within. You'll battle with the old nature, but it's not in control. That's what we learned about in in Romans chapter 7. We have been divorced. We've died to the law. We've married another And that one is now in control. Notice it says the mind governed, verse 6, by the sinful nature is death. That means death now. It does mean death in the future, but it means death now. In other words, death is a present state for the one whose life is governed by the sinful nature. Everything about it is death. The wages of sin is death. Sin always leads to death. You say, how, how can you be dead when you are alive? Ephesians chapter two and verse one, you remember these words? As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, in which you used to walk, to live, when you followed the ways of the world. So you were alive following the ways of the world, that's the way you live, but you were dead while you were living. And Paul talks about some widows who instead of following a righteous course are following a wicked course and they are dead even while they live. Think about it. So many people in our world today are the walking dead. Sounds like a television series. I've never seen it. It grosses me out to see the previews. But it makes me think, if we could see the spiritual realm, how grotesque it would be to see that so many are walking lifeless and apart from God. Alienation from God is always fatal. Separation from God is always death. Governed by the sinful nature, 
that's death. But to be governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Life now. Even though there is more to come. John chapter 17, verse 3, when we believe in him, we have eternal life. It's a present possession. And as Kathleen was talking about Mike's life, she quoted John 10, 10. Christ has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Fulfilling. Life indeed. And that is the blessing that comes to every child of God. It's life and peace. And it's the blessing of the Holy Spirit. John Stott made this interesting observation when he said many of us would pursue holiness with far greater zeal and eagerness if we were convinced that the way of holiness was also the way of life and peace. And that's exactly what it is. We're just not convinced of it. The way of holiness is the only way of life and peace governed by the Holy Spirit of God. So the one experiences death even while they live and the other participates in life even though there's more to come. God has given us a down payment of what heaven is going to be like. He's given us his spirit as a guarantee. And the life that we enjoy now is nothing, nothing like the life that is to come. We just can't see it. But we should. Because it affects the way we live. Now notice when you go to verse 7, the mind governed by the sinful nature is hostile to God. What did we say about the mind governed by the Spirit in the previous verse? It's life and peace. Oh, but there's hostility in the heart controlled by carnality, by the old nature. Hostility. They're hostile to God. There's animosity. And that mind cannot submit to God's law. It will not submit, and it cannot submit. Isaiah said there is no peace to the wicked. Only war and conflict. There is no rest unless you rest in the God of rest. William Barclay said, God is not the friend, this person's friend, but his enemy. And no no man ever won that battle against God. No man has ever raised their fist against the holy God of heaven and won. In the end, we find out that we are debtors indeed to our creator. So there's hostility between the mind governed by the sinful nature and it will not submit. There's rebellion. It is indeed a moral and psychological impossibility for someone whose life is governed by the sinful nature to surrender to God. They will not because they cannot. And they cannot because they don't want to. So that's where the work of grace has to touch the heart. 
and totally change the outlook and the passion and the desire. So this unwillingness becomes indeed even inability to yield. I will not yield. There is an interesting phenomenon going on in our state and other Midwestern states in that many intersections are being turned into roundabouts. You notice that? Um, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Sometimes they're called traffic circles. If you're in Massachusetts, they're called rotaries. That's a really bad name. But anyhow, uh, very popular. I remember being in Boston one time and one of these big roundabouts, I mean, it was huge. And the average speed was supposed to be 55, but it wasn't. And that was a circus because I'd missed a turn and so I had to travel several miles north to find a roundabout to come back. It's interesting too, if you ask engineers why, they'll say, well, for maximum safety and to reduce delays. Research shows that 90% of fatalities are eliminated by roundabouts. And 75% of accidents that lead to injuries. As someone said, slower speeds in common sense. <laughs> but I've never, I've never seen common sense on the road. <laughs> or rarely. And even among myself. But here's the interesting thing. Here's, here's my take on it. What are they replacing? Usually, four-way stops. Which... A four-way stops are interesting because as you come to that four-way stop, you've got to determine who has been there before you. And if someone comes in after you but takes off before you, you honk the horn. <laughs> you proceed into the intersection so as to just narrowly miss their car and let them know they were wrong. Well, maybe you don't do that, but I know of some people who have. <laughs> And why are we replacing these four-way stops? It's because people don't know how to yield. It's a little bit easier in a roundabout, I suppose. But there still has to be this understanding that someone's in the circle before you. And when you get the feel of it, it's not so bad. But it highlights the fact that we have problems with submission and yielding. And yet indeed, that's God's plan for us when we acknowledge our sin and turn from it and trust the Savior. Isn't it interesting that the one mindset will not submit to God's law, cannot submit to God's law, the other mindset delights in God's law. That's what it said in Romans 7. Paul said, I've got this battle because on the one hand, I delight in the law of God. And you'll notice in verse 4, it's by the Spirit that this righteous requirement of the law doesn't give to us the righteousness by which we are justified, but gives to us uh, the, the obedience and the holiness that is part of our sanctification. 
And that comes into the soul that is led and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit lives in your soul, he writes the word of God on your heart. Which is exactly what we read in the prophets. Remember Jeremiah 31? This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's the heart of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Same thing in Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now the word flesh there doesn't mean sinful nature. It means soft and pliable as opposed to a heart of stone. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both foresaw the need for a new covenant and a new spirit, not coercing Israel from the outside by commands they couldn't keep, but moving them from the inside by a spirit who inhabited their soul. You and I still can't keep the law of God without the Holy Spirit of God doing it through us so one mind is hostile to the law of God and will not submit to the law of God while the other mind is friendly to the law of God and delights in it verse 8 simply says those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God an inability to submit equals an impossibility to please Did you know that you were made for that very purpose? To bring glory to God, to please him? To put a smile on his face? You know what that is as a child when you live in such a way that your parents smile upon you? In fact, many of the the things that kids do, even into their adult life, is still to gain their parents' approval. We were created to please him. How do we please him? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For the person who comes to God must believe that he exists. And you must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is there and he is good. God is there and he rewards. If you believe that, then you cast yourself upon God. And without that, there's no way you can please him. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Only faith can. But verse 9 says, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature. So Paul, for a moment now, becomes very pastoral with his people. And if you want to know a little more about these people, you can even read their names in chapter 16. Paul had a very intimate and close relationship with the congregation in Rome. And Paul is saying, now, now, less I've given you so much that everyone is going to doubt your salvation, let me say this, you are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if indeed 
or if the Spirit of God dwells in you. The word if is a Greek word that can be translated since. Most translators use the word if as a gentle prod for you to examine yourself, and that could be true, but I kind of like the sense of since. You're not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. He's going to show the contrast in a minute. But Paul is simply saying, you're a believer. And as a believer, the Spirit lives in you. And these things about being controlled by the flesh are not true of you. You are controlled by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. Did you notice the Spirit is mentioned independently of the term of God? But we know it's the Spirit of God. But if you look at verse 9, it talks about the Spirit of Christ. They're synonyms. They're used, indeed, interchangeably, two, two ways to say the very same thing, which highlights again the triune nature of God. The spirit that is in me is God's spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of Christ. God has infused himself into the believer. That's the distinguishing mark of a true believer. The spirit is there. In chapter 7, verse 17, sin dwells in me is what Paul said. Now he says in chapter 8, verse 9, God's spirit dwells in me and I'm a temple. Verse 9 says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, last phrase, last part of the verse, they don't belong to Christ. Wow. Horrible words, haunting words. You don't belong. You don't belong in the greatest group in the world. You don't belong. Your sin has driven you out. You don't belong. Except the Savior died on the cross to say, come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. I won't reject you. I'll take you in. You'll be part of the family. I'll forgive your sins by faith, simply trusting in me. All of my accomplishments on the cross will be yours. Sin forgiven and life eternal. But if you reject him, hear these words, you don't belong. God doesn't hold the feet of his children over the fire with anxiety concerning their eternal relationship with him. Read 1 John. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. But nor does he want us to be deceived. He doesn't want us to keep guessing. But he wants us to know, to make our calling and election sure, as it says in Peter, to make sure that we're part of him. So just by way of review, look at these two lifestyles in contrast. The walk in the flesh or the sinful nature and then the walk in the spirit. Both have a mindset, one ordered by the things of the flesh, the other ordered and directed, bent toward the promptings of the spirit. 
The one governed by the flesh, the other is governed, but it's by the spirit. The first ends in death, where the life in the spirit ends in life. One is hostile to God, one is at peace with God, and there's no condemnation. One will not submit to God's law, the other delights in God's law. One cannot please God, the other lives to please God. What we are governed by determines how we think, and how we think, how we behave, and how we behave, how we end, life or death. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so Paul said in writing to the church at Galatia, a very interesting sentence, he said, so live by, since we live by the spirit, Let us keep in step. It's not the Greek word for walk. It's the Greek word for march in rank in a military fashion. Keep in step with the spirit. What a great image and analogy. And if we do, we experience life. And if we don't, we experience death. And all the while testifying to a watching world what is right and what is wrong. I think if we would simply yield more to the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, understand our birthright and live to please the one who reigns in our soul, what an effect we'd have in this world. Far greater than any legislation, far greater than any movement would be the movement of the Spirit of God and his people. You think about Christianity in Rome. When Paul was writing the book of Romans, there was great persecution, and Paul would lose his life executed in Rome, and Nero would come and, and uh, slaughter Christians until Constantine came along. And then he made Christianity the national religion, which sounds like a good thing, <laughs> but not always. It was Constantine's father, Constantius, who actually was dealing with some governmental authorities and those in public office. And he, he came up with this decree. He said, if you were a Christian, you must forsake your faith or give up your employment. If you're a Christian... You must give up your faith or give up your place of employment. So, so many, to be true to their conscience and their trust, uh, trust of Christ, gave up their positions. Others renounced, who said they were Christians, they renounced Christ to keep their government employment. After the dust settled for a moment, Constantius came back and said, I'm going to hire back all the Christians who left And fire all the people who said they were Christians but gave up Christianity for their job. And his reasoning, if they won't be true to Christ, they won't be true to me. Walk in the Spirit. 
Keep in step with the spirit and you'll not fulfill the loss of the flesh. Heavenly Father, cause us this day to examine our own hearts, to find ourselves in Christ and Christ in us. Under the spirit's control, enjoying life and peace for your glory. Some people here don't know Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'll speak to their hearts today and draw them to yourself. Open their eyes that they might see their sin and see the beauty of our Savior and believe upon him, whom to know aright is life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.